Uh, I just wanted to thank all the men for showing up yesterday. We had, I believe, 38 men show up and sing Amazing Grace and pray together in, in a parking lot at 6.30 in the morning. So it was a unique and special and encouraging time together. So thank you, men, for showing up. Um, it, was just, it was just awesome to see all you guys there at the crack of dawn coming together and worshiping Christ. Um, life, I don't think, gets much better than that. So thank you, men, for doing that. And I look forward to the days ahead as we come together as a group of men and worship Christ and set the pace for Cornerstone Bible Church. Well, I'm going to use the words that are worn out by um, that great expositor and man of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who would always say, I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew 26 this morning. Matthew 26. And the title of our lesson from God's Word this morning is um, God's Gift of Failure. God's Gift of Failure. We have been walking in the footsteps of Peter through the Gospel of Matthew and through Matthew's eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I hope what you've been seeing as we sort of wide-angle lens and get a big picture of Peter's life and as Christ discipled him and mentored him, is the steps with which a man became broken and a man was continually dying to himself during every step of faith. And yet as he was broken and as he died, as he walked in Christ's footsteps on that path of the cross, that God, as he broke Peter, was continually pouring into Peter gifts of supernatural and divine love that were transforming Peter into the image of Christ and that was preparing Peter to become a lead under shepherd in the church and that would totally transform not just Peter but the flock and the church and the history of the world based on a love that doesn't come from earth but a love that comes from above. And so we've seen through all those different gifts that we've been, we've been given and that Peter's been given We've seen the gift of, of Christ and his presence and his person. We've seen the gift of God's love in Christ and the light of his word that was given to Peter. We've seen the gift of obedience. We've seen the gift of the cross. And last week, we looked at the gift of forgiveness that God gives that enables us to turn around and forgive other people who have offended us or who have grieved us. And last week, we saw the bigger picture that really who we are and what Christ is molding us into being and what he calls us to be as a church is really based on the character of God, the character of God that he has shown us in his son. And so on the one hand, God is a God of righteousness and he does not ignore sin. And so as his children, he calls us to call sin for what it is, that it is a debt to him and that it must be handled and it must be dealt with and we can't ignore that. And yet at the same time, God is a God of mercy and compassion, which is what the cross testifies to us. And so God has come in Christ and given us mercy and compassion and forgiveness of sins and has given us new life and has given us a completely new start where we are completely new creations and we're free to go and live a life free of the guilt of our past life. And in fact, Christ comes and washes our feet on a regular basis with his word and renews in us that cleanness and that sweetness of fellowship with God that comes from being forgiven. But in turn, he calls us to be like him. 
that we are to be children also of mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion not just in feeding the hungry, which is important, and not mercy and compassion and not just only in taking care of the weak and downtrodden, but also mercy in forgiving our brothers and sisters when they offend us. And to pursue the love and grace that we, unlike the world, have the power and the ability to be a forgiving community and to be a righteous community, not because of who we are or anything that we bring to the table, but because Christ is our king and Christ is the leader of CBC and Christ is the Lord of our lives, our hearts, our families, and everything that's about us. And he has poured his spirit into our hearts and given us a hope that we in and of ourselves can't do this, but we can look to him and find a forgiveness that comes from above and not from below. And so that's where we've come. And we're walking down these steps. And as we get closer and closer to the cross, the stakes get higher and higher and higher. And in today's reading, we are very near the cross in Matthew 26. And we are going to see one of Peter's most public and greatest failures. And we look at failures in our society, in a society that values success at all costs. And failure is a shame, as something to avoid and protect against. We look at vulnerability and brokenness as something to hide and not to admit in our marriages, in our relationships with our parents, in our relationships with one another. And yet I think what we'll see today is that in Peter's life, failure is a gift from God that prepares us to receive the blessings and the mercy and the greatness and the glory of the cross. We've got a long reading today, so bear with me, but I want you to get the full flavor of the passion of Christ. And so let's turn to Matthew 26, and we're going to read from 30 all the way through to 75. After singing a hymn, and this is after they had celebrated the Lord's Supper together, Jesus with the disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went again away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. 
Then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword, and he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not know, or do you think, excuse me, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus, so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with the Galileans. You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him, and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. 
And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. In 1992, the U.S. Olympic basketball team assembled the first group of professional basketball players to play for an Olympic team. Many of you may have seen the documentary recently and you're familiar with that unique and iconic moment in basketball history, which in many ways changed the history of basketball and made it an international game and laid the foundation for many international basketball stars to come to the U.S. to play. But that team with Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, um, Patrick Ewing, I think, maybe I'm wrong on that, but Charles Barkley, the whole host of team, the, the dream team, never before and never after. And their coach was a man named Chuck Daly, a rough and tumble guy who looked like he had a perm. Uh, the coach, I believe, for the Detroit Pistons, who were a, a bruising blue-collar team. Uh, and the question was, how are all these stars going to work together? What's going to happen? Uh, how's it going to fit? Are they going to be able to play team basketball? And Chuck Daly was an interesting guy. And what he did in their training time as they did their training prep in La Jolla, California, was he did an uh, exhibition uh, prep match, which you probably saw. And he did it against a group of college basketball stars. And he brought them in and he played them. And the word on the street, which is rumor or hearsay after the fact, was that Chuck Daly basically put in suboptimal lineups and plan the strategy of his team to make it hard and difficult for those stars. And ultimately, the college team beat the dream team by a margin of maybe around seven or eight points. I'm not sure what, but it was a reasonably or significantly wide margin. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, beaten by a group of college athletes. They had failed. And they had failed in a humiliating fashion. And apparently at the end of that game, they wanted to play a second game to try and recoup their pride and to show them that they were better than what, what had been seen on the court. And Chuck Daly allegedly shut the game down and said, not today, we'll do that in another day. And those men had to live with the failure of their loss. Of course, we know the rest of the story of what happened with the Dream Team. And in the journey of life, we like to celebrate our successes. We like to go back, and nobody likes to go back and think about the failures in our marriages, our homes, our jobs, or our careers, or our ministries. And yet sometimes the things that we overlook are the failures that are necessary to take us to the path of success. And if we look at a man like Michael Jordan, where even Michael Jordan needed to fail in order to know or learn how to be a different player and how to learn how to win and how to learn how to play by the playbook of a given coach. We have to say only as an illustration and only as a metaphor because we're not here to play basketball. How much more is failure a necessary part of our road 
in learning how to successfully work with the playbook of God's word that's been given to us and to learn how to serve in a way that's pleasing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see today with the Apostle Peter as we walk through this passage, that what was critical for Peter, who was gifted in so many different ways and would go on to be a wonderful and marvelous and compassionate and gracious and kind shepherd, a shepherd who would stand in the gap and help the early church face, face persecution from both without and within and ultimately help lay a foundation of Christ that we stand upon to this day that it was necessary for Peter to fail, and to fail on a very, very big stage, and to fail in probably one of the biggest ways that anybody could possibly fail, denying your Savior not once but three times. And hopefully we can see that that's not something we want to imitate, but at the same time we can see that that in and of itself was ordained by the Lord and was actually a gift that prepared Peter to receive the glory of the cross. Our narrative in Matthew 26 begins on the eve of the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. Jesus has just had communion or instituted the Last Supper with his disciples. He has loved them. He has shepherded them. He has spent the night before his death not worrying about himself. He has spent the night before his death loving and graciously pouring into his disciples to prepare them not only for the cross but what is going to happen after and he has exemplified the model of leadership not as the Gentiles as a king who lords it over his people but as a humble servant a slave and a shepherd and after he's done they gather together and in all likelihood it's a Passover hymn or praise that they sing and they sing to the Lord together as a group of men. It's a marvelous thought and a marvelous sight as you think and we were able to imitate that maybe just a little bit Saturday morning in the parking lot of a group of men gathering together and praising the Lord together after a meal. Ours was donuts but and the donuts probably came after but they gathered together with Jesus and sang that hymn and sang that praise to the Lord and then Jesus takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane and to the, the Mount of Olives which is a mountain facing the wall of Jerusalem, a quiet and secluded place where he had gone on a recurrent basis to teach the disciples and to take them apart, a place that was familiar to them, which was free and away from distractions so that they could focus on the task that was at hand. And as he walks on that path, he begins to share with them and he says something which is most profound and most devastating. It's there in verse 30, 31 where Jesus comes and basically says to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. What a statement. There's no exception clause to this rule. You will all, every single disciple who is with them, short, tall, good, bad, and ugly, every single one, blanket statement, none would survive. You will all fall away or stumble or veer off the path of faith and it's going to be on account of me and what happens to me and then he gives them the reason why what's the reason why in verse 31 the reason that Jesus gives 
is not an intellectual construct. It's not a paradigm. It's not philosophical reasoning. It's not a gut instinct. It's not even personal experience. The basis for his statement is based on the living word of God. He says, you will all fall away. Why? For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. It's a prophecy that's taken from Zechariah 13. Hundreds centuries before Jesus is to come to the cross, the Lord has laid the foundation of his specific ordained plan according to his will and his word, and not one aspect is going to be overlooked. And it always thrills me to look back and see what was written centuries before the event. And so turn with me, if you will, to the very end of the Old Testament, to Zechariah 12. Zechariah was a name that was given by uh, David and Silvana West to their son, I believe, right? I was hoping to get that name, but they beat me to it. But I was overjoyed when they told me that that was the name they gave their son because Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Zakar means remember, Yah is God or Jehovah. And so it's a testimony that even during hard times that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever and he has not abandoned his people. And though he disciplines, he will restore. And Zechariah's testimony is one of discipline, but also of restoration and hope. And that hope is going to come in the arrival of a shepherd king. And if you look at Zechariah 12, verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then jump down to 13. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. And they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. It's uncanny, is it not, to read that and to see an amazing testimony of the piercings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all planned by the authority and the will of the Word of God centuries before. And so Jesus is shepherding his disciples, and he is shepherding them 
not just with compassion, not just with a pat on the shoulder, not just with a hug, but he is shepherding with the only thing that can provide light for the path forward, encouragement, strength, and comfort, that though difficulties and trials lie ahead, the Lord is not absent. In fact, the Lord is very much present. And those difficulties and challenges are the trials of the cross, which God is using to work their salvation. What a comfort for us in our trials when we stand, if we are following in the path of Christ, as hard and as difficult as those are, whether it's a sick child, whether it's a difficult employer, whether it's challenges that have come up which are beyond our control, but we are simply following the Lord, whether you are an elder and things are brought against you just because you're serving or you're loving, and you stand there alone and you stand there naked, and yet what can we say? There is a comfort that comes from the word of the Lord that God has planned all of our days. It says he orders the steps of the righteous man. I've worn my voice out saying that to every man who has been nominated for the vetting process, that there is a comfort in the word of the Lord that regardless of the blows that we take, that ultimately Christ reigns and every word that he has spoken will happen. And Jesus is comforting his disciples with this. And it's kind of lost on them, but he's comforting it, them with it. And as we look at that phrase that he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I want you to see that the Lord is saying something very profound. What he is saying is that you are on this path of the cross and you have come so far, but at the moment that the shepherd is removed, you as sheep do not stand a chance. There is no way without the shepherd that you are going to be able to stay on the path of righteousness. And God is going to allow this to happen, and God has ordained this to happen, and we will see why as we go through the rest of the passage about why this is actually for the disciples, a gift of God's love. But it's a lesson to us that there is no way that we can stay the course and follow after Christ unless he is with us, unless we are one with the shepherd. And the moment that he steps out of the picture or fades in the background, or the moment I step off the path and he and his word starts to fade in the background, as a sheep, I'm dead meat. Get me ready for the hamburger factory, okay? Because without the shepherd, I am inadequate for the task. But Jesus does not end there. What does he say after he says this devastating statement? He says in verse 32, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. What a gracious and merciful Savior that we have. That there may be periods that we stumble. That there may be periods that we may fall. But Christ does not abandon us because we sin. I'm not encouraging you to sin. And I'm not encouraging you to stumble, but what I am saying is we have a gracious and loving Savior who says to his disciples, yes, each one of you is going to abandon me. It's going to be painful for me. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be grievous, and it's going to be hurtful to the Father and to me. And you're going to blow it, and you're going to blow it big. But I'm not going to abandon you because my steadfast love endures forever, and I am your shepherd. And after I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to go ahead to Galilee and I'm going to gather my sheep. 
I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to be your shepherd. I was your shepherd while you were sinful. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but he first loved us. Here is love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. It is the same Savior who saved us, who is the Savior who restores us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is the Savior who I need. How does Peter respond? Peter says to him, immediately, all of this would seem is in some ways lost on Peter. He just comes out and reacts immediately. And he says in verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Let's make one thing clear. Peter loved Jesus, loved him deeply. Maybe we might even be able to say loved him the most of all the disciples. Peter was loyal to Jesus, passionately loyal to Jesus. And we see as Peter's confronted with this statement that all will fall away, that it's almost more than Peter can handle. It's beyond the hard drive. You can see that beach ball swirling around in Peter's head of how can this possibly be? And then he he just comes out and he says, it's never going to happen. But it's interesting as we look at that, there's passion, there is love, there is zeal. But if we look at what's the basis of Peter's statement, whereas Jesus and the basis of his statement is the living word of God and the wisdom of God and the will of God, the basis of Peter's statement is what? Peter's wisdom, Peter's will, and Peter's word. And it's what he's going to do, and it's what he's going to accomplish. And when you step back a few steps, what you see is that what Peter has really done is he's completely blown off Christ's statement. The prophecy from the Old Testament and the living word of God in the New Testament. And he's come and he's trumped it. Whatever you say, Jesus, whatever God has said, whatever his will and word is, I know better. And when you see that as well, what Peter says here is, all may fall away, but I will never, ever. Peter basically is literally saying, I'm the exception. I'm not the rule. That may be for everybody else, but I'm different. How many times have we heard that in the counseling time together? How many times have we said that to our wives or to our husbands? And yet what we see here is Peter walking down this path. And one of the things that it's going to show us is that the moment, the basis of our reasoning is my wisdom and my will. And the moment we choose to step aside from the word of the Lord and what it says, we started to go down a different path. It's the path of failure, but it's the path of the flesh. The flesh of the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God. And Peter's embarking down this path. And Christ is gracious to him. Doesn't take it as an insult and he comes back and he says to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what does Peter say in response? Comes back even harder. 
the bigger, greater sweeping statement. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then we see something interesting. Who else follows suit after that? It says, all the disciples said the same thing too. When we look at this conversation, we see the statement. We see both the grace of the shepherd who gently comes in not once but twice and does not take insult and offense and continually comes in to work with Peter and remind him. And then we see Peter's act, which is a very typical act of the flesh. Who gets the last say in this conversation? Who gets the last word? It's Peter. Peter gets the last word. Based on his love, based on his zeal, based on his passion, based on his experience, we see that and it's terrifying. And yet, I have to say, how many times have I done the same thing? Where something from the word of the Lord is brought up and it's uncomfortable or I don't understand it or it doesn't fit my experience or I've never seen that happen before or I can't see it happening in front of me. There have been times when I've been at Grace and we've been dealing with different procedures and the shepherds up front have said, Mark, we want to sit tight on this. And I'll say, just explain it to me. Why are we doing this? I don't get it. They may give me a biblical principle. They may give me scripture. And at the same time, I'm still struggling with it. I'm having anxiety. Why isn't this getting resolved right here and right now? And the tension that goes on in my flesh is, I've never been there. I don't know it. I can't see it. How am I supposed to accept this? I don't understand. And yet what I'm being challenged with, and, and I remember one shepherd saying to me, Mark, I might not be able to articulate it clearly to you at this time, but I'm your lead shepherd on this. Would you just wait for me and just be patient because there's something in my heart that says we need to sit tight before we jump on this and would you just bear with me as a brother on this? And we're going by faith and not by sight. And yet how often do we want to have the last word? And yet if we're having the last word, whose word reigns supreme? And whose wisdom reigns supreme? Is it my word or is it God's word? And that's a challenge that exists on every elder board, on every group of men, every leadership, every marriage, and every family. Who will have the last word? And in this case, Peter decided he would have the last word. And so we see that the will and word of failure is really the will and word of our wisdom and our words apart from and separate from the will and word of God. And there's no amount of zeal and there's no amount of passion and there's no amount of loyalty that can stand in the gap. Quite to the contrary, as we see what happens to Peter at the end, is that everybody else follows his lead because he's such a passionate and zealous and exciting and loyal and loving leader. And we have to say that the moment we step away from the word of God, we are becoming a stumbling block and we're leading others astray. And that the only safe place for the sheep is with the shepherd, where the shepherd gets the last word and not us. How does Jesus respond after hearing from Peter a will and word of failure? Peter, from this point on, is doomed. He was doomed, obviously, from the word of God that destined it, but he was also at the same time both end, doomed by his hardness of heart and his pride and his confidence that he was able to manage and handle this. 
better than the others. He was better than the other disciples and more able to handle it than the rest. He might have been a better fisherman. I might be a better physician. You might be a better lawyer. You might be a better housewife. But on the trials of the cross, it's a level playing field and there's only one thing that stands, Christ and Christ alone. Jesus knows that. And yet he's gentle with Peter, and he does not hard with Peter. And what he does in the second portion is as Jesus prepares for the failure that is to come, the failure and the horrors of the cross, but also Peter's failures, he gently brings Peter with him, James and John. He does not cast Peter aside and say, okay, you're asking dumb questions, and you're making dumb answers, and you're being difficult, and you're being hard-headed. That's it. See you later. I'm just going to be with the guys who are kind and nice. Have a loving and patient and gracious Savior. And he takes Peter and he takes James and John and he takes them with him to a small and quiet place. And then what does Jesus do? And he models for them and he allows them to participate with him in the only preparation that can sustain him for the cross. What is it? Verse 36. Jesus says, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he says, my soul is deeply grieved, in verse 37, to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And 39 tells us that he falls on his face and he begins to pray. It's the first thing that Jesus does to prepare him for the greatest trial of his life. How often is that the last thing I do? And I shared with the men today and yesterday. There are times where I feel I've got so much to do and so much sermon prep to do. I don't have time to pray. And yet we see our Lord and Savior taking a very radically different approach. And as you look at that, the beauty of that moment is Jesus comes before the Father out of love for the Father. Jesus in his prayer does not minimize his emotions. He does not minimize the grief. He does not minimize the pain. Sometimes we think we're going to pray about it and not talk about it, that we're being heartless and emotional and we're not addressing concerns. I think the encouraging thing for me is I had a chance to phone all the men, almost all the men who put their names up for nominations, as many of them said on the phone, I don't feel adequate for the task. I have concerns. Mark, help me with these concerns, A, B, C, D, and E. And it's almost, we feel like it's, it's inappropriate to raise concerns. And I would say to you, it's not inappropriate to raise concerns. The issue is, how do we deal with those concerns? Are we going to deal with them Peter's way through our wisdom and experience? Or are we going to deal with it Christ's way through the wisdom of the word and the nurture of his spirit? And so we see our Savior modeling that where he goes to the Father and says, look, I'm having difficulty with the path that is before me. It's breaking my heart. It is putting me flat on my face. I'm struggling with it. And there's no shame in that. It's an expression of love to the Father. And maybe when we're having a hard time or concerns, the place we need to be is not even sharing it with one another first, but to share it with the Lord and to be flat in our face and to go to the Lord saying, look, these things that are happening are breaking my heart. But then what does Jesus do? What does he say after that? Not my will be done, Lord, but thy will. If this cup could pass... The cup that he's referring to is the cup of God's wrath and suffering that is predicted in the entire Old Testament in judgment of sin, which he will have to bear and drink to the very bottom on behalf of you and me. 
And yet Jesus comes to the end of it in humble submission to the will and word of God. Do you know what love is? There is a love that comes from man that says, I will never leave and abandon my friends and I will die for them, which is the love that Peter expresses. It's not a bad love. It's a love that we should have for one another and that is a love that we should have for our wives and our family and our children. And yet that love means nothing unless there's the love that Jesus demonstrates to the Father. Lord, this is going to break my heart and my life, but I love you so much. Not my will be done, but your will be done. That is Christ's preparation for the failure of the cross. And yet we see a contrast. What is Peter's preparation for the failure that is coming for him? We read in 39, or 40, excuse me, that he comes and he finds him sleeping. And who does he go to specifically? Go specifically to Peter. Jesus loves Peter, loves Peter to death. And he comes to him and he sees where he's at and he sees the path and he knows what the will of the word and the will of God is going to do and yet his heart yearns and breaks from him. We read in one of the other gospels where he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that he prays for us during those difficult times where we're stumbling. You know, even when we're veering off the course, Christ has not abandoned us, but he is interceding on behalf of us before the Father for us. Such is his love for his sheep. It is not conditional based on our sin. It is based on his love and his love for the Father. And yet he finds Peter sleeping. And this incident is going to happen repeatedly three times. And what do we see with Peter in his preparation for future failure? It's a heart that says, I have this covered. I can handle this. I'm able, basically, to do this in my own strength. And so now I'm going to get some rest and prepare for the battle that's ahead. It's a feeding of the flesh, the flesh being the frailty of man as opposed to the greatness of God. When we read that idea of the flesh throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's used in a variety of different ways, but one of it is is our humanness as distinct from God, our frailty, that we are not God, that we're just men made of dust. And Jesus gives Peter and those disciples two words of counsel. What does he say? He says, basically, do as I did, but you're sleeping. He said, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Keep vigilant. The idea of a watchman on a fortress or on a watchtower waiting for the enemy to attack. When? During the daytime? No. In the middle of the night when nobody's looking, by stealth, coming up to take the fort and to take the city, that the watchman stands there and he watches and he looks for any sign that there could be attack. And maybe he'll make a false alarm, but he is a watchman. And that theme of the watchman goes throughout the Bible. And that as servants of God, we are to be watchmen. We are to be watchmen first over our own hearts. And to be a guard over our own hearts. Because Satan is continually attacking. And he doesn't attack when things are going well, usually. He doesn't attack when men at 6.30 in the morning are singing songs of amazing grace. And are coming together and confessing sin and praying to one another. He comes when the newborn is sick. He comes when the employer is breathing down your back. He comes when there's been a conflict in the marriage. 
He comes during hard and difficult times to sow his seeds of the flesh. Say, wouldn't it be better if my spouse was different? Wouldn't it be better if we had better elders? Wouldn't it be better if we had a better building? Wouldn't it be better if I had a better job? All of the things. Wouldn't it be better if I was a smarter person? Wouldn't it be better if I was taller? All of those different things that confront us at that time. And Jesus says, watch, be vigilant. And express that vigilance in prayer. What is prayer? So often prayer in my life is a laundry list of crises and needs that I go to the Lord with. And our Father desires that because He loves us and He wants to hear from us. And He wants to hear from our children come to Him rather than go to all the other places in the world. But we see in the big picture that prayer is a humble submission to the will and to the Word of God. Prayer is a humble submission to the will and Word of God. That at the end of the day, where prayer ends is always at the statement, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. That's what prayer is in the name of Jesus. And that's what prayer that Jesus was praying. And that's what he calls these men to do. And as we are humbly dependent on the will and word of God, and as we are coming to God in love and pursuing him and coming face forward and sharing with him our concerns and watching and submitting our will to his and allowing him to have the last say rather than us having the last say. We are in the sweet spot of the spirit of the Lord and we are keeping in step with the spirit. And the power and strength that oversees our lives, our homes, our ministries is not my strength and my wisdom. It's the strength of the spirit of the Lord. The spirit that has slain giants. The spirit that has overcome cities. The spirit that has overcome nations and armies with a handful of men. It is the power of the Spirit of God. And this is where Jesus is going. And he's shepherding his disciples. And his disciples, for them, it's completely lost. And so what happens? Preparation for failure leads to the path of failure. And we see in the next section as we get to 47 through 75 that Jesus finally says, wake up, get ready. The time and the hour is now. And we see Judas come to Jesus. And Judas comes with a kiss. And Jesus greets him and says, Rabbi. And an interesting thing to note is in the Middle East that a disciple never had a right to come and greet a rabbi because a rabbi was on a much higher level. Judas does not use the phrase Lord, which the disciples came to use for Jesus, knowing that he was the Son of God and the Christ. And Judas is no longer able to say that statement. He says, Rabbi, teacher. And Judas comes and greets him first, which is a breach of protocol. And essentially, the message is sent is, we no longer have the relationship we had before, and now I'm over you. Whether he knew what he was doing or did not, that was a message that was being strong and being sent as opposed to the disciples who were behind Jesus. And how does our gracious Savior respond to him? He refers to him as friend. He refers to him as friend. It's very convicting for me. If Jesus can say that about Judas, what am I to say about every person who's ever offended or hurt me or betrayed me or let me down? Can I greet them regardless of the insult and come to them and say, friend? 
Han always refers to me as friend. I hope it's not because I'm Judas. But I'll say friend. But you know, it's always a term of endearment that warms my heart when he says that because those are the words of the Savior to a sinner. And I love it when he says that. As Jesus greets, his path of, of failure is one of surrender, complete surrender. He allows them to take him. He goes to the court. As they bring accusations, though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. As Peter says, who was an eyewitness, as we see from that account. And it's in complete contrast to Peter's reaction. Jesus' path is the path of surrender and humble submission to the will and word of God. And it's in that place that he finds power to face the trial of the cross. Peter, on the other hand, as we learn from John's gospel, does what? He follows the path of the sword. You see that there's a crowd, a community, who have brought clubs and swords in the middle of the night. And so Peter sees swords. You're going to bring a sword? I'm going to bring a sword. I think of those famous statements from the gangster movies. They, they bring a knife, you bring a knife. They bring a gun, you bring a gun. They bring a baseball bat, you bring a baseball bat. But Peter is functioning in that way. It's like, Lord, I'm going to save you. But you know what? He's long gone on the path of the flesh, of I can handle that, and I'm going to use the resources of the world to fight this battle. How often when we're faced with those challenges, financial hardship comes, the money's not there, there's a medical bill that needs to be paid, and what's Mark Chin's first instinct? Where on earth am I going to get the money to handle this? Do I need to work a second job? Do I need to go to my parents to borrow money? Do we need to move in with our in-laws? What are we going to do? And I'm sitting there hedging my bets and trying to cover with every resource that I know humanly possible that I can come in and do that. And yet, who is our God? The creator of the universe, the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the one who is no man's debtor. He is the one who has allowed that shortfall to happen intentionally, maybe in part to test my heart, but in the bigger picture, perhaps to bring failure into my life that I will know how to depend on him. Somehow we go to his resources last. And when we've gone down that path already of rejecting his word and saying, I know better, by the time crisis comes, we're fighting with both fists and every sword that's available. And such is Peter's approach. And yet Jesus' response to him is, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. There are many things that we're gifted in, and Julie's always said this to me, Mark, your strengths are your greatest weaknesses. That's true for all of us. You may be an excellent lawyer, you may be an excellent doctor, you may be an excellent plumber, you may be an excellent contractor or consultant or paralegal, whatever you are, and that's good and you need to do so, and you need to be excellent for the Lord, and you need to be a bright light, but at the moment, those skills that we are great in begin to replace the will and the word of God. We are dead meat. Because as we live by those things, we're going to die by those things. And the church and the elder board and the leaders and the households that live by intellectual reasoning, that live by great financial sense, that live by great medical skills. Ultimately, we're going to come to the past where those things are going to be our undoing and we will die by them. And I have had to tell you, brothers, that there were times where I functioned in leadership. I told you this many times as a physician. 
and I have been a stumbling block for the flock who I was with. And if I could turn the clock back and take those times and moments and those statements back, I would. But perhaps the Lord has allowed those failures to stand there sharp in my mind and to hold me responsible as an overseer of souls and that one day he will lovingly say to me, Mark, you're forgiven, but I also want to hold you accountable for what you did at that time and that moment. And I say, Lord, it is just. It is so. I need your mercy and grace. Praise God, I have a Savior. If we live by the sword, we're going to die by the sword. And so it's no surprise as we move on in the passage that Peter ultimately does better than the rest of the disciples. All the rest of the disciples flee. Who's the last man standing? Peter. He ends up going into the courtyard of the high priest as Jesus is being tried. Such is his love, such is his loyalty, such is his zeal, such is his passion. He's run a marathon, and all the other disciples have dropped out at mile two and three, and Peter at mile 24 is still standing. Yet he's standing in the flesh. And you know the rest of the story, and we read the rest of it today, that Peter is standing there watching, and it's one thing to watch and say, I'm going to be there and I'm going to die with you. But it's another thing to see your Lord and Savior the Christ, the Son of the living God, your friend and the one who you've left everything for, your most intimate, intimate companion for the last three years, to sit in a courtyard and watch at a distance, to see him beaten, to see him slapped, to see him spat upon. I don't know whether you've ever witnessed a street fight up close or seen a person beaten, but it is an unpleasant and most disturbing, and I will almost go as far to say demonic, demonic event where men have totally given themselves over to the violence of Satan and the murder of Satan, whether it's a brawl in the street or anywhere else. And for Peter to witness that at a distance, we see is beyond his capacity to stand and handle that to the point where a little servant girl who comes to Peter and confronts him and says, weren't you with this man, evokes a response of a lie and a fear of a denial of Christ. And as we go through and see Peter's three denials, they ratchet up in intensity. First, it's a servant girl. Then it's a servant girl appealing to the crowd. Peter moves away and gets further away so we can be a little further distance and maybe have a little bit of security in the darkness by the gate and you see that Peter is hanging on by his fingers trying to stick this out and make it out to the twelfth round and the stronger he tries to hang on in his flesh the greater and greater and greater his sin and the greater and the greater his stumbling and the greater and greater his damage friends the more we try and honor the Lord in our own strength and our own flesh the bigger the building that we are building to jump off of at the top at the end. Second time around, Peter makes an oath. It's usually a, a swearing or a promise before God. It's usually a statement like, God punished me or God damned me if I am not telling the truth. 
that I do not know this man. Strong language, but Peter's not done yet because by the time he gets to the third denial, it says there is swearing and cursing. And when we look at the Greek language, the reference of the type of cursing they're swearing is the talk, it, it's a language of cursing someone else in order to dis dissociate yourself from their company and distinguish that you are not like them. I can't say for sure, but the text is suggestive that at that last statement, that the words that came out of Jesus, that Peter's mouth was that he may have actually even cursed Jesus himself in order to show that the amount of hatred he had for the Savior demonstrated that though he was a Galilean, he had nothing to do with this man and that he was on the side of the high priests who were beating on Jesus, spitting on him, accusing him, and murdering him. But what brings Peter back? Praise God. And what brings each one of us back? The rooster crows, and the word that Jesus has given to him before comes back to Peter. And it's the word that breaks his heart, but it's the word that saves him and distinguishes him from Judas, where there is no word of love to begin and there is no word of love to end. And that cock crowing for Peter and the fulfillment of Jesus' words is a word that breaks, but it's also a word that heals, as it is for each one of us when we stumble. And when a brother comes and brings his word to us when we've stumbled, that is a word that breaks, but it's a word that heals. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, myself included, our way initially when we have those words that come to us is to be like Peter. I'm the first among it to have the last word, to be defensive, to explain. But will we follow the path of Christ's failure of the cross and say that this is a word that breaks, but it will also heal in due time? And so the cock crows, and it says that Peter weeps, and it says he weeps bitterly. And the language in Greek that he uses for that bitter weeping is the weeping of a wail and a mourn. And it's the weeping that is accompanying funerals when a lost one is di has died and you walk in the mourning period, in the morning time, and you weep in the mail but wail because a death has happened of someone who you love and someone who's precious to you. And you see with Peter that there is a weeping of a death that has happened, that part of Peter's life has died, his relationship and part of that relationship has died. But praise God as we see the rest of the story, it is also the weeping of a repentance that comes from the word of the Lord. What is the path of failure? There are two. One is the sweet surrender to the will and word of God that leads to the cross. And one is the path of the sword and the flesh that ultimately leads to denial, to stumbling, and to despair. Praise God, we have a Savior. And the good news at the end of this is that Jesus is not done with Peter. And we know the rest of the story, and it soon will go basically to Peter's restoration, which will probably be the next in our series and the final before we get to 1 Peter. But what can we say about this? We end on a devastating note. We will see the uptick. 
at a later date. But we see that for Peter, who was so enamored throughout his career with his ability to lead and his natural talents and his wisdom and his ability, that as grievous and as hard as this was, that these things were necessary, that failure for him was a gift, and it was a gift from God. Because when you go to 1 Peter, and you go to 1 Peter in the first chapters of 1 Peter, Peter goes and says to the people who are struggling with trials, and he says to them, all flesh is like what? Grass, and the flowers like the field, and the flesh withers and the flowers fade. But what does he end with? And he's quoting from scripture. The word of the Lord endures, what? Forever. Isn't it interesting to see Peter, who lived by the flesh and refused the word, coming to Peter who are suffering and in trials and saying, guys, don't live by the flesh. It's going to let you down and crumble. Live by the word, the eternal word. And then what does he say at the very end to close? He exhorts them to pray. He says, humble yourselves. The proud man says to them, humble yourself underneath the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Pray, because that's what I didn't do in the garden. And then he closes and says, be sober and be vigilant and watch. Why? Because your enemy, the adversary, Satan, is like a roaring lion wandering and prowling to see who he can devour. Peter got it. Watch and pray, watch and pray. Because, friends, we are not in a battle with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. That what this church is going through, elder nomination, future of the church, restoration, we're dealing with spiritual warfare. And if we think we can get our water pistols out and fight that battle, sorry, we're on the path of failure. We need to watch and pray. And when you see Peter and how he is able to bring that to bear for a community and we stand on the fruit of his shepherding, we see that in Peter's life. Failure ordained by God was actually a gift. There's a sermon that I will post for you, Lord willing, on the website. It's Jonathan Edwards' sermon, God Makes Men Sensible of Their Misery. And he fleshes this out in greater detail than I give it, can give it to you right now. But he makes that point. For Peter, it was a gift that prepared him. What about you and I? What about Cornerstone? And what about the leaders of the church? Brothers and sisters, if we are going to follow Christ, the only way we as sheep can stay on that path is if we're one with the shepherd. And the only way we can be with one with the shepherd in our homes, our marriages, our leadership, and our time together is if we are humbly submitted to his will and his word, and if we're watching and if we're praying. But here's some encouragement. Praise God, we have a gracious shepherd that when we do stumble, he does not abandon us, but he comes to us and he pursues us and he gathers his sheep and he restores them and he collects them. Why? So that those failures that he has ordained in our life can be used and redeemed so that we in turn can come to others and say, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Watch and pray.
because we have a shepherd and a savior who redeems and restores, who leads and gives life. And as we follow in his footsteps, one day we will be like him and we will see him face to face and we will behold his glory and we will be like him. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are, that you have not abandoned us. Forgive me for the countless ways that I walk in the flesh and seem to think I know best. I just pray that you give us hearts that are submitted to your will and to your word. And I thank you, Lord, that you come to wandering sheep like us. You pursue us and restore us. And you use our failures as the gift so that we can greater appreciate the glory of the cross. In your name we pray, amen.